Episode 8, July 24th, 2020, Gems of Wisdom from Experience, John Sanders' Parable for Entrepreneurs podcast, and visit johnsanders.com for more episodes and articles. So, John, this morning we've got uh, several uh, things from my past history in actions with uh, myself and things I did, and also interactions with uh, teachers and uh, cohorts that gave me some fodder for my uh, uh, discussions with business people. Mm -hmm. And um, so I thought we would just cover those and have fun. Good. So let's start with what um, has intrigued you, the $50 leather-bound family Bible. Love it. When I was a senior in high school with another group there, we did actually revivals. I led music in revivals. I was an Elmer Gantry-type person. And Mm -hmm. we went from Louisville, where we lived, up into southern Indiana, a farming community, and would do uh, evening revivals, uh, and the churches supported it, on Friday, Saturday, and Sunday. So during the daytime, we had nothing to do. So at the same time, I had signed on with Sondavan Bibles, which is still in business. I didn't kill them. And uh, (laughs) I decided to make some money and sell Bibles door-to-door. Mm-hmm. So the nice thing about farm communities is the woman is home, nobody else is. They're all out on the farm. And she is right. bored to death, and they answered the door. People don't answer the door today. So you can't do that sort of stuff. But I would show up, and I had my little suitcase with Bibles, and I would tell them, uh, I am here to give you, I represent Zondervan Bibles, I'm here to give you some Gospel of John tracts. You know what tracts are? They're little pamphlets. In fact, if you yeah. walk on the street, the uh, the Watchtower people have their little tracks yep. also. Gospel of yep. John. And I said, here, to give one for each of your children. And uh, no charge. And so she'd say, five. There's always five kids. And um, mm-hmm. uh, so I'd give them to them, and I'd say, now, I sell Bibles. I have very inexpensive Bibles. Each of your children should have their own Bible. Should not get mm-hmm. hand-me-downs with Bibles. So can I come in and show you the Bibles? So they, oh, now she owed me because I gave her tracks. So I'd get in the house. <laughs> and uh, uh, so I don't remember the Bibles, 3 to $5, something like that. And uh, so that was, selling those Bibles was covers my overhead. But the real key was I had to look around and say, so where is the family Bible? Because that was the mother load. The Bibles were yeah. 3 and 5 bucks. The $50 leather bound was 50 bucks. And I made 20 wow. bucks out of it, okay? Which was pretty yeah. good money in 19, when was it? 1955, uh, 55 uh-huh. and 6, all right? Before you were born, probably. No, I was born in 52. Oh, okay. <laughs> but so, close. So the reason the $50 that stuck with me is that in business, I tell people, look for the mother load. You're in business. The first thing you do is cover your overhead. Get profitable. Then look for niches where you can make high profit margins because that's what grows your business. Now, you can't mm-hmm. rely on niches because a niche, by definition, gets closed. So it's a place you can go in and establish yourself and make some real money. So I use that example of looking for the $50 leather-bound family Bible as something in business we look for. Yes. And uh, it, it pays off. You just look for a big thing. So same thing with you in business. Find something that really makes some money and jump on it for a short time. Yep. 
The next year, my first year in college, I wound up selling typewriters door-to-door. -door. I presume you remember a typewriter. Oh, you know, clickety-click. Typewriters were complex mechanisms. They weren't simple. Mm -hmm. I sold Remington Rand Quiet Writers. The Kentucky Typewriter Company was the local distributor for uh, Remington Rand, so they did all the repairs and everything else. And I was just a commissioned salesman. So the key to selling the typewriters was I had, they at the same time, Remington Rand was running a big national promotion. 37% better grades with a Remington Rand quiet writer. That's mm. pretty, pretty thing. Well, yeah. I actually believed that. And the reason was I told them, I said, I would go around to these houses in West, West End of Louisville, and I'd say when they got high school seniors or kids in college or something, you type a term paper, and two things happen with the teacher. Number one, they read it much easier than your written words. Number two, they think you spent more time on it because you put together a nice-looking package. It doesn't take a D paper and make it an A, but anything on the margin between B and A gets jacked up to A. It's anything gonna kick between it over. B and C gets jacked up to B. So I really believe that. Well, the, uh, uh, the, the, the zone manager for Kentucky Typewriter when I first started was down on the street where I lived. And he says, now, how many houses on this street? I don't remember. Let's just say 250. He says, trust me, there are 225 legitimate no's. Don't waste your time with them. Concentrate on those that are logically going to be a yes and spend mm. your time with them. But here's the bugaboo when you're dealing with yeses and no's. Most people in life don't like to tell you no. It's just not human nature. Yeah. <clears throat> so you know what it becomes? A maybe. Maybe, yeah. maybe, maybe, maybe. Come back. Give me more information. Do this. So their mantra is, I said maybe, and that's final. It never gets to a yes. <laughs> so when you get two so maybes, that, quit. Move on. Yeah. So yeah. then he says, so you get through with these 250 houses. Then what? There's another street and another street and another street. The world is full of streets of houses. It's a big world out there. Don't get caught up with, I've got to close this sale. Get your ass moving. So that's yeah. my story on I said maybe and that's final. I have a little sign right here. I, I gave them out many years ago. Sent them out as Christmas packages. I said maybe and that's final. Nobody <laughs> else could, uses that. I think it's great. Yeah, yeah. So that And that spawns a conversation. People ask, what do you mean by that, John? What does that mean? Yeah. <laughs> well, that's, that's traditional. Will you tell me no if I ask you something? Well, maybe. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> All right. So when I finished engineering school... I got a job with General Electric. Mm -hmm. Big company then. It's still big, but then it was real powerhouse. And uh, my first three months, four months with them, I spent in Owensboro, Kentucky, uh, at a receiving tube division. Then mm -hmm. they shipped me off to Schenectady, New York, which was Mecca at the time, to work for the large steam turbine generator division. Because, see, I went to University of Louisville, which was a big power engineering school, electric power and so forth. Uh, and uh, so that fit right in with what my uh, education had been. You know, transistors didn't exist in those days. So I get to General Electric, big, big, big facility. Large steam turbine generators are big, and the factory was big. But I was in the engineering group of about 15 guys at the building 
about 100 yards away, the engineering building, building 263. The manufacturing was 273. So one day I'm, I'm an engineer, a newbie engineer, and yeah. I'm over in the factory and uh, uh, checking things out or doing something. And the foreman for all the big, for putting this big generator together, foreman calls mm-hmm. all the guys together and I had to listen to it. And he says, okay, today we get our yearly visit from the boys from the research lab, which was big out mm-hmm. there in the suburbs. They're here with their bag of solutions looking for problems. We have to deal mm-hmm. with it. Of course, they're all union guys and had no respect whatsoever for researchers. But I forget, I remember that. I said, this bag of solutions looking for, for um, problems. And the same thing happened to me subsequent to my graduate degree when I was working for the government in a research group. And we were out in industry looking for new technologies. I loved it. God, I got everywhere. And that's when I fell in love with entrepreneurs because entrepreneurs had those niches that they were trying to fill. And so we could finance them. I had money for contracts. I could do 25000 just my signature. Anything above that, it had to go up the line. When you got to 300000 you had to go all the way to the top. And uh, uh, the uh, so I, after, after you get to twenty five or 50000 and you get something good, then you got to give them some more money. Next thing you know, it moves up in amount and you got to go defend it. All right. So what I found was, that we are now had to go out into the agency and look for customers. Who's going to use this stuff if I get it done? So I needed I needed problems to solve. And I suddenly realized after a couple of years or so, I was one of those guys with a bag of solutions running around the agency looking for problems. And I said, I, can't I love it. Th- I can't do this all my life. This is terrible. I'm like a door to door salesman again. So. Yeah. That that sort of changed my life as far as um, sticking with the government. I spent five years with them, loved every minute of it, but not mm. for thirty. Yeah, not for thirty. Yeah. So, I was mega solutions looking it, for problems. I made two critical decisions in my life at GE. Number one, I did not want to be an engineer in a big company all my life. I did not consider that really fulfilling. It was a job. And you got to do good things, but it didn't. It wasn't a dynamo. The second thing was, sure as hell, not in upstate New York. Schenectady mm. was the weather. I was a Kentucky boy. There were days when I had to walk from the Y where I lived around the building 270, 263. I had every stitch of clothes I owned to get through there, and I'd get to the building, and I would peel them off and sit in front of the radiator back in those days and to get warm. It took me half an hour just to get so I could... Concentrate. Mm. Well, you're in Southern California I'm now. In, oh, and I'm loving it. God, I love it. Yeah, yeah. And I figured out why California is so expensive. It's worth it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. So when I another thing I learned about there was we had about 15 or so guys in the engineering group that I was in, and so the manager was moved out. Suddenly, we had no manager of that department. And I was asking mm-hmm. the guys, so who do you think is going to get promoted? And their, their immediate answer was, they don't pro- promote from one of us. They'll bring someone in from outside. 
because hmm. GE had a whole management sequence. So engineer, you progress as an engineer or a technical route, and another you progress as a management group. And they really didn't cross-pollinate those. I guess they did, but not, not that was not the intent. So the, the new guy comes in. He knows all the, the, the way things are done. The management's the same as the management, as management, as management. So they have the same things to do and, as the other groups did. So his job is to find them and get the guys organized to get, to get to the, the, the conclusions. And the other thing it did, it cross-pollinated General Electric. So when someone thought, here's what we need, their immediate thing, let's look within GE to get it. Not go mm-hmm. out, of course, now with Google, God knows what you do now. But within GE, yeah. it was always look within GE. So GE bought from itself over and over and over and over again. Very uh, efficient mechanism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm kind of wondering how it's changed today, like you said. That'd be interesting. I don't know. I don't get into big companies anymore. My daughter is in Cisco, which is a big company, uh, the, yeah. the networking company. And actually, she's in a group, very small group, that's looking ahead in Cisco's business plans to see where they'll use promotional items like debit cards and other stuff like that. That's her. Mm-hmm. That was her history of doing that kind of stuff. And so she's been very successful there, and she loves getting around, um, getting around and within Cisco to find out what they think they're going to need in, in the next five years. So I finish up uh, at General Electric, and I'm deciding, you know, I, I can't be in this big company. I'm going to go to graduate school, and I'm going to get medical electronics. That was the hot thing because transistors were coming in. So medical electronics. So. To go back to Kentucky from Schenectady, had to drive down to Philadelphia, cross the turnpike to uh, Ohio, and then down into Kentucky. So I lined up four schools to go to. First one was University of Pennsylvania, of course, an Ivy League school. I'm a Kentucky boy. That's a big jump. But uh, I remember going into the double E department. I don't know whether I met with a dean or a graduate student, but whoever it was, his first question was, so how much biology have you had? Uh, 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 probably yeah, yeah. eighth grade, uh, three weeks weather of it. He says, you're already too far behind. You'll never be successful. By the time you get enough prerequisites to be into medical mm-hmm. anything, you're going to be way behind. My suggestion mm-hmm. is you pick something else. Do you want to see the lab on your way out? Five minutes, I was gone. Right? Oh, yeah. He was right. All right. He was right. So I go over to Penn State, just heading west. I get to Penn State. I couldn't find the damn engineering building. I said, this place is too big for me. <laughs> I'm moving on. I got to Carnegie, what then Carnegie Tech, what is now Carnegie Mellon in Pittsburgh. And I get to the front door of the engineering hall, and I get met by the head of the double E department. He greets me. He says, hello, John. He says, I've seen your, I've seen your uh, transcript. You did very good at Louisville. You'll do good anywhere. Not worried about it. He says, uh, have you thought of going for a PhD? I said, well, I guess it's in my mind, but I hadn't really given it consideration. So he said, well, we'll finance you all the way through. We're, our job uh-huh. is to turn out, and we need, we need non-Carnegie Mellon students in our faculty because we're too overloaned with our own people, and we need to spread mm-hmm. it out, and especially mm-hmm. those with industry experience. So that year at General Electric paid off. Plus, I was co-op undergraduate. He says, I said, boy, that sounds good to me. Sign me up. 
He says, do you want to see the lab on the way out? Same five minutes. <laughs> One was a total <laughs> failure. The other was an absolute success. All right. That's, yeah. That's five minutes. Of film. We talked longer than that, but it's the same principle. In five minutes, a decision was made. I was ready to go. I signed up. Yeah. 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 What a great school. I'm sure glad I stayed there because uh, the first year they bombed me because my mathematics wasn't research-oriented mathematics. It was practical engineering-oriented. There's a difference in life. So I get bombed. I wasn't flunking out, but I was on the margin as to whether I was going to finish a master's degree in one year. So I go in to see Dr. Williams at the end of the first semester, and I says, you know, I'm not sure that this is cut. I'm cut out for this. He says, I've decided you were, and I'm still decided you are. You're going to stay around. He says, plus, because I was teaching double E for civil engineers, which is their worst course in life. And I was mm. teaching night school, of course, because all the us graduate students taught to night schools. And and uh, these guys had been, this was their eighth or ninth year in school. And they had finally had to take the double E course, basics. And I was teaching them. And uh, that's so Dr. Williams says, plus, if you leave, I have to replace you teaching that class with some high-priced professor. I can't afford for you to leave. Well, it turns out it was the greatest thing I did was stay around. And um, next, next, the next uh, end of the first year, I'm looking around at these professors. Now, who do I want to do research with? They're all up in the clouds with their mathematics, antennas and semiconductors, and all of it's mathematical because you can't see anything, see? And, you know, you can't see radio waves, so it's all mathematical. Yeah. You can't see the electrons and semiconductors. It's all mathematics. So I, I came across Dr. Finzi who was an old Italian-German engineer, uh, that World War II guy. He was, a, he was the dean of professors. Hmm. And he had all of these history of hundreds of, uh, of, uh, hundreds of, uh, of a thesis in magnetic mm -hmm. amplifiers, which is where you go through a history slip up one way and down and curve, and therefore you can amplify things. And so I went to see Finzi, and I said, Finzi, I'd really, Dr. Finzi, I'd really like to work for you in my thesis area. He says, I only get the best students, and you're not one of them. <laughs> he was blunt. I love blunt people, you know. He says, you're not one of them. But he says, I'm trying to take all my old magnetic amplifier thesis and get into superconductors, which down in liquid helium, where the, where the conducting becomes zero resistance, and a lot of great things happen. And I can use another student, but I need one that knows something. So go see Tom English, who was the, he said, he's doing my one thesis and talk to him about how working with me is. And then get yourself a summer job in super, somehow in superconducting and come back in September and say, Finzi, you need me. I know more about this stuff than you do. So, so I still don't know how I got it, but I latched on to RC Radio Corporation of America, RCA, RCA Research Labs in Princeton, New Jersey. So I spent the summer over there working in superconducting computer memories. I mean, this was all hot stuff. So I came back in September, end of August, whatever, and I did exactly what Finzi told me. I walked in his thing and said, Dr. Finzi, let me tell you what I did for this summer. And I think I would be a great student for you in superconducting. He said, did you meet so-and-so? I don't remember his name. I said, sir, he was a level or so above me. He said, well, he's one of my students. I'll call him and see what he thought about you. So he calls me back and he says, he thought you did great. All right, let's work together. 
So that being able to being able to find that niche, one more one more niche, to get Finzi to take me out of the the rabble of grades and put me into knowledge, made the difference. I was out of there in three years. It it was great because well that's because uh, during the time. One of the guys I lived with was a year or so ahead of me in getting out of his degree. We had three of us had a house, had a ball with that house. And um, uh, so I, he was taking Russian. Because, see, this is now 62 or 3, somewhere along there, 64. I finished up in 63, but degree is actually 65 because that was the next graduation cycle. But um, the Russians were big. They said, off oh, Sputnik, they were ahead of us in space. Their, their technical articles commanded more attention than U.S. technical articles. So he had taken Russian as one of his languages, or was taking it to pass. He had to have graduate languages. And we had, you could pick two, you had two languages you had to get. You had your choice of German or Russian, and you had your choice of French, Spanish, or computer programming. I did computer programming, even though I had French mm -hmm. in high school. Because he had the big computer over in the other building. That was the days when the computer was in the other building. And uh, so I had to do learn basic and learn how to program the damn thing, because I was decided I was taking these experience these experiments with the coil of wire down in liquid helium, and had to do it overnight when the electricity wasn't bouncing around, when nobody was turning things on and off. And and uh, uh, so my I took lots and lots of measurements, and well, you had to put them down and calculate them. And, and I finally said, I'm going to program it so I can put it on the computer. So I'll go in to see Finzi. And I said, Dr. Finzi, I've got to use the computer so I can chart all my uh, measurements on the computer. He goes, oh, another student gone to the computer. <laughs> 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 he said, now your mistakes will be to 16 decimal places. <laughs> <laughs> Because <laughs> it was crude experiments, and but you came out and sure. your numbers were always 14, 16 decimal places. I'll never forget. Oh, my God, he says, another student gone to the computer. I can see him <laughs> sitting right there where you are. Yeah. So he says to so I went in a little bit later after uh, that, and I told him one day, I said, Dr. Finzi, I'm auditing Russian. He said, why are you doing that? I said, well, the articles, all this sort of stuff. And he says, don't you have your language requirements? I said, yes. He says, and this I'll never forget. Get your degree and then learn what you want to. You're here to get a degree. You're not necessarily here to learn, but the major goal is to get that damn degree. So yep. this is what I tell companies today. Get profitable and then do what you want to do. Because if you're not profitable, profitable you will go out of business. Sooner or later, or you'll have God to deal John, with... That's, that's such... Your deal with charlatans like me that keep taking pieces of your company. No, I know, and that's such great wisdom. Yeah, it, it so, has stuck with me. So those half yeah. a dozen items really have made a big difference in my life and give me things to talk about with people that are really uh -huh. somewhat unique from other people's advice, but based uh -huh. really on my personal experience. But I love that yeah. last one. Get profitable and then do what you want to do. He told me, get your degree, then learn what you want to. Well, I'm chewing on that this weekend. You know that. Yeah. Well, I covered my list, Mr. John. Yeah, you did really, really well. And it was a pretty long list, but it's a it's a great story. And what a great 
What a, you know, for you, it must have just been just wonderful way back when. It just completely shaped your life in a sense. Oh, all those it? things did. Absolutely. Yeah. And to the betterment. So. Yeah. Anyway, here and, I am. And, I'm doing what I'm doing and loving it. Yeah, and you're doing really Love well. Love dealing with guys mm-hmm. like you. Entrepreneurs. You are yep. now an entrepreneur. Yes, I am. Yes, I am. Welcome to the club. <laughs> All right, John. Well, thank you. Anything else you want to talk about? No, that's about it for today. Yeah. You know what I'm going to do? What? Take my list and put it in the file because now I can just listen to the podcast. Yep. It'll be out Monday. Great. Looking forward to it. I'll see you Monday.